Hello and welcome to With Relish on the Headstuff Podcast Network. If this is your first time listening in, welcome to the show. We're a fortnightly food podcast focusing on all things good in the Irish food industry. And this week we're talking about cookbooks and food writing, which is a topic very close to my heart and I know it's close to Eva's heart as well. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, I was kind of thinking about this episode this morning and so I was a bit of a nerd as a kid. I loved to read. I read lots of fiction, but I also read anything about food. So yeah. I kind of grew up standing on a chair, like stirring a pot, like wooden spoon in one hand and then some crappy cookbook in the other hand. It's such a cliche, oh my God. I know, but <laughs> like I would just, I'd read them kind of cover to cover and then <laughs> there wasn't a wealth of cookbooks in my house. My, yeah. my folks weren't huge cooks, but um, like nice cooks, but not that into food. I was kind of the only one in the house. And I'd read like um, Indian takeaway menus that oh, came through the door for, yeah. for ages. My siblings just slagged me about that. Yeah. Or I'd read, yeah, just kind of word by word, going, I wonder what that is. Yeah. I wonder where it comes from. I wonder what it smells like. So I think, that you know. Such, I was like, okay, I was saying there, I was being rude. Not, and I was like, you're such a cliche. Like, no, it's it's that pathetic. So like, nice. I just that read the back so of great. packets and the go first, through all the ingredients. The back you know, of cereal boxes, I suppose, was kind of like my first kind yeah. of like introduction to like reading. I wanted to soak stuff up, and I suppose my. I'm trying to think, like when when I first got into like food writing, I know that I know the book that got me, mm. the one that sold me on food writing and sold me on food, and it was like one of those things whereby I I, I realized that food could be way more. And that was Nose to Tail Eating by Fergus oh, Henderson. Yeah. That's true. Uh, published in 94. Is 94? No, the restaurant opened in 94. I'm wrong. The book came out in maybe 99. Yeah. I discovered that when I was probably about 20 years old and mm. it's this beautiful little white hardback and the whole thing just spoke to me. It was one of these things where I was like, oh, this is beautiful. The photography in this is gorgeous. Mm. The styling is great. I get it. I love the food that they're talking about. I love the message they're talking about. I love how they're talking about it. Yeah. I was like totally transported to this idea yeah, and this yeah, place, yeah, yeah. this place that Henderson brought you to. So like, yeah. I know, like I know that that was the one that like sold me on it. Yeah. So and speaking of kind of being transported to place, you're talking about a particular way of cooking, mm. but a really good cookbook can kind of be like a travel guide as well. It can be your first knowledge of a culture or a climate or a place. Absolutely. You know, it, it can be quite political. You know, yeah. I really love Otto Lange's book, Jerusalem. I spent a bit of time in Jerusalem about 10 years ago. And still, when I pick that up, it transports me. You know, I can smell the place. I can see every kind of living cheek by gel with all this tension around them. Yeah. But that like food is one of the things that's kind of crept across cultures there by osmosis. And mm. they do scrap over like who came up with hummus first, who came up with falafel first. Do you first. call that an Arab salad? Do you call that? Uh, yeah, exactly. But... And Israeli. Israeli. Who? Who's involved we're, in that? We're not again? editing yeah. that. Episode. Um, Sorry. But yeah, I was only you know, there this year. Really... I was in Jerusalem this year as yeah. well. And it was one of those things where I had the book and beforehand it felt like that was preparing me for what was going to be exactly. going on. And it is yeah. like, it's a living document of the society yeah. you know of the cultures that are going on there and all of the influence and like the Ar- huge Armenian culture that's there and then you've got Palestinian you've got everybody you've got Greek living exactly. you've, got, you've got it all it was incredible yeah. and the food tells the story of that yeah and exactly and then um, another one of those for me that told that kind of I suppose not confused story but told you this, the real story was Andalusian food and when yeah. I was reading cookbooks about that where I was just seeing that the journey of this thing you know like that it's particularly Moorish and I was yeah. like oh well, like, okay ah, that's, that's why it's so different food. it brings you totally to the place and so by yeah. reading the recipe and Claudia Roden is so brilliant at that as well yeah. and she's talking about Arabesque and she talks about the Arab world and she talks about North Africa and she's Egyptian originally but she talks about that that food moves and cultures move and that was yeah. one of the things that just like got me about food writing. Yeah, so it's I suppose what we're trying to get at 
in this episode is how it's so much more than just a list of ingredients. You Absolutely, know, you, it's, yeah. it's a really important sort of social document, sometimes political document, mm. geographical document. It tells you loads of stuff. Like, for example, at the moment, I'm preparing for a fumbly dinner that will um, feature Cajun food, um, Cajun and Creole food. So from America's Deep South, uh, specifically Louisiana. And I've been reading a lot, mostly online, although Harry's just given me a really beautiful book called 200 Years of Nolan's no, Cooking, which cooking. I'm really excited about. You mentioned Nappy it to me the other day and I thought, oh my God, I have that exact book at home. And it's yeah. one of these things where like I buy all of my books on book depository and then I forget about them because it yeah. take like three weeks to deliver. Yeah. And then they arrive you're in the door. It. Yeah, <laughs> I'm over it. And I'm like, oh my God, I forgot that I really was into New Orleans cooking for like a minute at two o'clock in the morning when I bought that book. <laughs> and then and then you just... You just knew that I'd need it. And then you... We're <laughs> but so no, no, so I read it yeah. by cover to cover and I just loved it. But, and yeah. I like, haven't cooked a single thing from it and never intend yeah. to. Do you know what I mean? And like, it's a simple looking thing I was saying to Harry. It's it's not full of beautiful photography. And I think there's just a few nice illustrations, simple illustrations yeah. throughout it. It looks like a library book. When I looked at it, you know, I said that looks like an old library book, but I am, like, I can't take my eyes off it. I'm dying to sit down and get stuck into Good. it. It's going to be so nice. Yeah. You know, this research I've been doing for this upcoming dinner I learned that Cajun refers to sort of country Louisiana cooking and Creole tends to refer more to city and they came from different places there are, there tends to be um, more French Canadian sort of influence in the Cajun originally comes from the word Cajun which mm-hmm. became Cajun. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I suppose the origins of the food are have been hotly contested over the years. That, you know, some people said French influence and other people said, you know, like that there were German influences in the food, that it was kind of home American cooking, that like African-Americans influence was quite written out of the history for a long time because a lot of African-Americans weren't recording recipes because they were still coming out of slavery or experiencing slavery. So, all, you know, you're learning so much about a place a by place. just deciding to cook a gumbo, yeah. you know. Which, by the way, is very close to a West African language word for okra, which features in a lot of early gumbos. So, you know, you can see all these mad links that tell you so much more about a place than just how to put a dish together. That's what we're talking to about our guest today as well. We talked to JP McMahon. Yeah. um, And, you know, he's of Inir in Galway and he's organiser of Food on the Edge. um, And he speaks to us about his book that is in the pipeline, which is documenting in full, it would seem, and with all the gory details about Irish food industry or uh, not Irish food Irish industry food Irish food culture, culture sorry yeah, yeah Irish food culture be, it's absolutely fascinating it kind of you know speaks to everything that we've been chatting about here so you know, it gives you the context the full the context, story and it's yeah. not just a list of like this is Guinness bread this is beef and Guinness absolutely stew not. you know it's like, no. we actually do more than just Guinness you know yeah um, and that's going to be a special special read when it eventually comes yeah out. absolutely and yeah. then we talked to Dominique Kemp as well who talked to us about you know who's a serial cookbook writer mm. um, as in multiples not serial <laughs> writing about cereal <laughs> <laughs> writing about cereals. she's really into Cocoa Pops <laughs> deadly right there's loads of different things I do really think Cocoa Pops are deadly actually to be honest they but are. there's loads of things you can, she thinks there's loads of things you can do with it so she's written five books about Cocoa Pops five. <laughs> so there's that to look forward to as well yeah and then we're going pleasure. to talk to a food stylist as well about kind of the full experience of what it is to uh, to make a cookbook make that lovely sensory and kind to of full es- sensory and experience. to make the full sensory experience yeah. exactly to escape that so I think loads to look forward to loads to look forward to let's get on with yeah. the Our next guest has long established himself as one of the country's leading chefs as a culinary director for the Eat Galway Group. But here to speak to us about his experiences in food writing and the process that goes into it, JP McMahon, welcome to It's Relish. Hi, how's it going? How's it going? Hi, JP. JP, so we wanted to talk to you a little bit about food writing. I know that you're involved in a ton of different projects within food, but today specifically, we'd love to talk to you about food writing and kind of what the role of that is. So I suppose I wanted to start off by asking you a little bit about your process and is it difficult to keep writing and keep coming up with new things? 
I suppose it's a, it, it's a strange one. I, I came to writing through, I suppose, writing my own I suppose, fiction and plays and all these, oh, these right. things. And, and, I, and I still do that to, to a certain degree. And I suppose I find that writing very difficult. And I suppose as an outlet, food writing for me is, I suppose, I find it a bit easier because it's, uh, it's something that's very concrete. Like I'm talking about a dish or I'm talking about a type of food in a particular place. And there's a lot of references in that. So I suppose I came into food writing um, I came into writing through I suppose a more creative academic side I did English and art history in college and, and I suppose I love writing and I never had that I suppose the outlet when, when we opened the restaurant and so I suppose I, I, um, I got into it that way but no I mean there's always pressures particularly with the, with the column on the Irish Times it's, it's every week and it has to be something new and that I think I'm supposed to be five weeks ahead and I'm always about two just about and, <laughs> and so I, I'm always getting um E- emails from the editor going, "Where is your column?" So, um, I hope it's not the case for for every, everyone writing a column because then uh, to the editor would want to kill them off. But uh, <laughs> no, no, I really enjoy it. I think it's an important side of food, and um, I think no more than uh, photography or uh, or PR. I suppose for me, I don't know why I've always seen food in a very holistic way, and and I, and I suppose I don't think it's just enough just to cook. I mean, I think it's important to be able to represent it, whether it's through writing, photography, uh, PR, and, and, and in that way. JP, I'm swooning here. These yeah. are all the things I feel as well. I think that you're absolutely right in terms of like taking somebody somewhere within food. That it's you know the experience can be huge, and it's so kind of multi-sensory experience. You know, whereby yeah. you can you take and absorb food in so many different ways that you can like read books and then you can escape. I don't know by writing about something like romantically and well, and mm. uh, that you can really take somebody there. No, no absolutely. I think it's quite. It is quite a romantic thing, particularly. Mm. When I wrote the the Cava cookbook, I mean, it's you're writing about like about I suppose Spanish cuisine or Spanish culture in Ireland, and that's what I suppose that there is a kind of um, a journey you take people on, and there's an element of the exotic. I mean, and I suppose that's why I mean, when, when of all the restaurants we have, Cava is the is the busiest one. I suppose I think Irish people always look for an exotic element, and I don't know. I suppose if that's because we didn't have our own uh, food culture throughout the 20th century, or or I didn't grow up with a particularly good food yeah. culture, and it was always it was always when you went away, you went to France, you went to Spain, you went to Italy, and you come back on them. Oh my God, the food over there is amazing. Yeah, um, and that's I suppose one of the reasons why we opened Cava, and then when we wrote the Cava cookbook. I suppose I wanted to try and get other people to uh, to cook and to read about it. That's actually something I wanted to ask you about. I suppose there are plenty of tapas cookbooks out there and you've kind of added something really lovely to it. Do you think there's an Irish cookbook in you? Like, is there a modern Irish cookbook or like digging up oh, old no, recipes? Is that something uh, uh, no, that you no, like uh, to do? Uh, abs- yeah, no, I'm working on that at the moment. Oh, and, amazing. Um, okay, you're way ahead. Yeah, um, <laughs> so it, it has a rough title of, of 10,000 and it's because People have been in Ireland 10,000 years. And so we've been eating food for 10,000 years in yeah. Ireland. And so it's it's something that I want to do to try and reclaim stuff. Yep, and absolutely. also re, like reclaim like prehistoric stuff. And then also look into a whole bunch of recipes from a period in, in Irish history. And then also reflect on, 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 the, on the contemporary. Because I do yeah. think now we have a food culture. And it's just about trying to understand... Uh, what our food culture is, and I suppose it's important to to try and see the um, the multi-dimensional aspect of that because yeah. whenever we think of food culture, people say oh French food culture and Spanish food culture, but when you go to Spain, there's like hundreds of different Spanish food cultures. Of and course, I, 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 I suppose we look at things in a very slightly myopic way sometimes, and I think Irish food culture is multiple and it's very diverse, and you have like restaurants like Emir that mm-hmm. that focus on just on, on the food that comes from Ireland. 
but that's only one aspect of Irish food culture. And I think it's important that people realise that, that like the contemporary Italian cooking in Ireland is also a part of Irish food culture. Of course, because whole, it's about imi- fabric, it's about yeah. immigration. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and that's going to continually change. And even some of the bits I, I researched, like the, the different food stuffs that uh, happened, say, when the Vikings came and the mm. Normans came and the Celts came, they're all, that would be the same today. Is it different... Uh, is it if, if uh, uh, some uh, people from, I don't know, like the Middle East came to Ireland and yeah. then 100 years' time, there was a Middle Eastern food culture. Exactly. You, you need to kind of absorb uh, both of those sides. And I think sometimes the, the local food movement does itself an injustice by excluding uh, things not, that are not yeah. from. And it's just, it's, it's a careful balance, you know. Basically, it sounds to me like you're researching a sociology, history, culture, geography and cookbook kind of all in one. And this is really speaking to us. Harry and I are just I'm making just excited melting. faces like, at each other here. I, really, I can't book. wait to read yeah. it. Um, are you going to try to give any sort of insight or do any research into why our food culture was kind of static and maybe why it didn't evolve a huge amount for a couple of centuries there? It was, it was kind of stuck. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, there's, there's probably, I mean, in the, taking, I suppose, in a, in a large kind of view, looking at it, I mean, you've got, like, colonialism, and yeah. that, I suppose, is detrimental to, to uh, I suppose, what you call Irish food culture. Um, and then, of course, you had the, you had the famine. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's loads of little micro-histories yeah. happening in in there. I mean, technically speaking, the food, the culture that, of food that was in Ireland under British rule I mean, is still a is still a food culture, and I think of that course, needs yeah. to be looked at ju- just as much. I mean, I suppose from our own sense, going into the twentieth century, definitely coming out of. I mean, I, I, I personally, I think religion and <clears throat> and the famine have played the biggest role. Yeah, because I suppose we didn't have a religion that celebrated food in a very pleasurable way, or we yeah. didn't interpret that way. I mean, I think Italy is a very Catholic yeah, country, Spain, but um, they seem to, they seem to really have a, a kind of Mediterranean um, uh, love of food. And we had a very ascetic kind of fasting, kind of only using food. And I, this is this is from personal. Really, when I was growing up, food was, was when you were hungry. Even when you think about it, we yeah. don't have a buon appetito or a buon provecho or a buon appetito. No, we have absolutely. no expression fin- like that. But it's like finish your plate where because we, people are starving around we the have world. Our of <laughs> yeah, we have slaunch because we're drinking. And that's another thing as well. I, I was speaking to was chef doing some similar research and between the 50s and the 80s it was like we had a massive drinking culture that, that where food played no part mm-hmm. and if you look at I suppose France and Italy of course they have a, they have a drinking culture but food played into that and mm-hmm. food when you were when you were celebrating food was a part of that I mean other than Christmas and maybe Easter I don't think there was any other big family meal celebrations. Yeah. Um, or now, I mean, with, with um, my kids, you'd celebrate on, on, during the week sometimes just because of, I don't know, because it's sunny and you want to have a lot of food and you want to yeah. have friends around. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really, that's, I suppose, really uh, important. And I suppose that's what we have now. But um, but uh, I do think, yeah, the 20th century, from a lot of different factors, you know, um, I think the the war played a big, massive thing because we didn't take part in the second one. Then we had rationing and then we had a big, massive economic war with Britain. And we, we only used our own food stuff um, and we, we imported nothing. We, like we wouldn't, we'd have a very, very simple diet, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe that's something the Mediterranean have above us. You know, I mean, it, it's more complex now because we've got polytunnels and glass houses and we can grow tomatoes and cucumbers and every during the summer. But mm-hmm. but uh, but before that, I mean, you, you were I suppose a, a very uh, 
kind of root vegetable uh, economy and and, all, and and a root vegetable economy that that, that doesn't that didn't eat a lot of fish even though we're an island and yeah. that's something again that I find really fascinating and we're getting really, we're getting much better at eating fish and I try and I try and write my column on on fish a lot Good, just to try yeah. and encourage people to try it because we're very well, we're very beef orientators and the irony of that is is that's a legacy of of the British I mean they used Ireland as a as a grazing, as a, just sure. as a ground for cattle. And then we give out about colonisation. And then, we, of course, we do the exact same thing. We grow a lot of cows and then we just leave the fishing industry to whatever, do, just take care of itself. And then that suffers. And now we're trying to remedy that. But, I mean, yeah. for a long time, the only industry we protected was the beef and dairy industry. And everything else was kind of like, oh, my sure, look, they'll sort themselves out, you know. When can we expect to find this book on the shelves? Any ideas yet? Yeah, well, uh, we did the Cava Cookbook ourselves. And mm-hmm. I suppose that's, if anyone, I suppose, is interested in writing this, I mean, this, I mean, and there's so many ways to, to publish now, and um, I mean, to to find a publisher and then and then go with that publisher uh, is a, is a long process, and we just like, I mean, I write, and um, was I love photography and design. My sister's a graphic designer, but friends are photographers, so I said, look, we'll just do it ourselves. Great. And I think the the book probably cost, I don't know, in around ten or fifteen thousand to produce. But in, in that way, we sell it online. We don't put it in any bookstores. And a lot of people buy online now and, and we're able to kind of recoup the claim. You kind of kind of make a decision when you're, yeah. when you're writing is that do you go to a publisher and get like uh, one euro a book? And mm. uh, uh, there's so many people to take a, a slot out of it. You've got the bookshop, yeah. you've got the seller, you've got the distributor. Um, so we just sell ourselves. We're able to use it as a window for the restaurant, but also we're able to reclaim and make uh, and make a, a small a small bit of money on it. This one, the, the thing you don't get if you if you self-publish is the distribution network. Yeah. And so so I so we decided to hold off on the ten thousand. And what I did was I wrote um, I suppose the first few chapters, did some photography sessions, and then we we sent it out to different uh, publishers. So at the moment, I'm, I'm hoping to get a publisher. And then that will be it'll be a year of writing, and then it will be that will and then it'll be about six months of production. So it'll probably be what twenty nineteen. I know, I know, and I know, and I wanted to like. I mean, I'm very gung ho. I would have just done it myself and published yeah. it by the end of the year because I could. I mean, we could, I, I probably could have done by December yeah. writing wise. But okay. again, it's another thing you've got to with the publishing industry. I mean, they operate at least nine months to a year ahead. And um, so I suppose it's a balance between me. I think it's important to, to try and get an international network for this book. Yeah. And if I do, if we publish it ourselves, I don't think it will get yeah. it. Are you doing it the right way? To, yeah. We're just impatient. I want people to be able to get this book in New York and yeah. to be able to see that, okay, this is an Irish food book. And it's, yeah. and, uh, and, yeah. and it's something different to your lamb and your Guinness stew and your yeah, soda totally. bread. And, and it's not that those recipes won't be there, but yeah. I think they'll be there in, in a context. In a context, yeah. yeah. Like, I, I prefer to see, like, well, where did lamb stew originate and come from? And then also have a lamb stew recipe that people yeah. make. But I think just have recipes, kind of floating recipes of, these are Irish recipes without any any context. But like I think that's yeah. what I want to try and avoid. By building the story around all of these and by giving kind of the Irish story and giving the context for these things and where they came from because I think often like I know that there are some chefs who have said that they would like to start the Irish food culture from now like year dot like everything mm. that went before is not relevant is an argument that I've heard before from some people and that's just not true when, no. this, when like even if 
if it hasn't been a super strong food culture, it's still part of the culture that we have now today. Like I grew up eating risotto and Caesar salad in my home. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's like, yeah. that's a part of what it was to grow up in the 90s in Dublin for yeah. not everybody. For, but no, I, I, <laughs> yeah. for the colleagues. I think, so. I think, I think when, when, when you write a book and I suppose every book excludes as much as it includes and I think a, a really good example of, of what you were talking about there is, is Magnus Nielsen wrote uh, the Nordic Food Cookbook yeah. and he put a chicken curry recipe in it mm. and absolutely everyone went mental yeah. because they were like chicken curry is not Nordic food mm. but he was saying that's what he was fed as a child and he was like that uh, curry came into into the Nordic region at a particular time and it has just as much a place maybe it doesn't have a massive role but it's still it's still there and, and I think you, you can't take a view where you can just say oh yeah Irish culture starts now everything else is, is, is not relevant or and I, I, I grew up like the first place I ever worked with was an Italian restaurant in the early nineties, and that, that was that was that was in my initial entry into food and into into like oh my god bread and really enjoying food. I still hold that, and you can't cut that side out of you, and then just say oh no no all Irish food is about carrots and anything. Yeah. It has to be uh, aesthetic, and I think that you you have to balance it all, off off both. That's not the saying. I'm going to put a chicken curry recipe in my book or uh, or a long tray. Uh, if if my my wife having what is it chips and curry and rice all mixed up together in her student days, I don't think that deserves a place Whoa. in an Irish food book. Controversial, controversial here. It was a very popular dish. The three in one. <laughs> um, I do think the the amazing thing is when you look back and particularly on the archaeological side in Europe about like we didn't have a great food culture like the first foods that were eaten by people that came here and they weren't even Irish people mm. I mean it was predominantly uh, shellfish so like oysters seaweed mm. load of wild herbs and hazelnuts and like if you look at any Nordic cookbook now yeah. that is absolutely yeah. the height of food fashion the yeah, height totally. of food fashion yeah. so we can learn like from that and then we don't have to say, oh, we never had any food culture. Like if we say, no, people were eating oysters and seaweed and foraged herbs. I mean, we, we can reclaim that yeah. and we can say that's ours rather yeah. than saying, oh, we never had anything because of the famine and because of this and because of that. It depends when you want to look at uh, whatever, whatever you call Irish food to be. Yeah, it can feel like Irish history started at the famine, but it absolutely did not. We've got this really rich and no, no, history before it, and it's wonderful that you're going to explore that. JP McMahon, really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming on and, and enlightening us a little bit about the process of making books. Um, I know myself and Eve are super excited to hear yeah, about Yeah, we're counting 10, down 000. to 2019. Oh, yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. That's one <laughs> really that are. It sounds absolutely wonderful mm. and it's going to fill a gap that I've been thinking about for a long, long time. For know? sure. Yeah. yeah, so JP, thanks a million for coming on to With Relish. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye-bye. Each week on With Relish, we invite someone in who has made an impact on the Irish culinary scene. Our next guest has established herself as one of the country's most prolific food writers in recent years. With four cookbooks to her name, along with a host of other businesses and food ventures, Dominique Kemp, welcome to With Relish. Thank you very Thanks much for, for having me. For yeah, yeah, are we details right there? Is there four books to your it's name? It's actually five. Oh, oh. oh sorry. <laughs> tell us them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. have to go back in time. Yeah. Uh, I know, it's just like panic. Yeah. So there was Real Food Real Fast, and then there was It's a Cookbook, and then How I Like to Cook, and then Dinner, and then the final one was The Ketogenic Okay, okay. sorry. So I made four yeah. solo ones, so you're yeah. technically okay. right. Five. The fifth okay. was co-authored. Okay. Harry Tech had that in the That's what it was. That's what you were so accurate. And so tell us, what was your journey into food writing? 
and having five books to your name, oh. even if they are shared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose it goes back to when I started in chef school and I went to Leith's over in London, oh, through yeah. Leith's uh, cookery school. And I did the year course there. And then I was working in restaurants in London and I actually went out to the Olympics, uh, the Atlanta Olympics. And I was cooking for people out there. I worked in the Olympics. Did you? When they were in London, yeah. Oh, yeah I cooked in was, the Olympics, yeah. It was amazing. Um, and uh, oh, it was I've never met anybody else who cooked in the Olympics. I cooked in the Olympics. Cooked, like you're going down yeah. <laughs> with the frying pan. The egg and spoon race. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So good. Um, and uh, that that was that was great. And then I came back here and then I came over for a weekend and um, my ex, Conrad Gallagher, he just moved into a new premises and then we kind of met and um, that was it. I ended up coming home, coming back and started working with him uh, straight away. So it's kind of plunged into running the restaurant and kind of what was his burgeoning empire at the time. And because he was such a, you know, the bad boy of cooking at the time and there was huge amounts of press and excitement because it was taking away from the old kind of guard that was a bit stuffy mm. and it was all new and exciting. Mm. He'd worked in Monte Carlo and and, and uh, in New York and everything. As this so, is the time of um, Peacock Alley. Yes, okay. yeah. So it was a really exciting time and he had a lot of press and, of course, then a lot of people looking for recipes and everything. And, you know, most chefs can barely write their own name. They are appalling to yeah. try and get them to mm. sit down and do anything. So that all got landed on me in a good way because mm. I, I really liked it and I enjoyed writing and stuff. So it was a kind of crash course and I started on there and then he, his first book, uh, New Irish Cooking, I kind of, did that which I grew up on and was the says. recipe where like that was the, that's still the ratatouille that I make oh no way yeah, yeah 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 where he like brilliant. he cooks out the um, tomato paste and a bit of white wine before yeah. and just takes the tinniness away nice. that's part of like my I'm dad so my dad yeah. was a big fan okay um, and so when he was teaching me to cook he was u- using yeah. that book a lot yeah. wow but and that's the, still the, my even ingrained technique yeah that, that's, that's from that that's like at the time when I was absorbing how you do that stuff that was the book that it was nothing will change that's how you make a ratatouille that's the only way I know how to make it that's amazing yeah because it was it was the late Walter Pfeiffer of course he just passed away quite recently so Walter did all the photography for it and and so that was first thing and I mean I was a child I was you know 24, 25 kind of like you know found myself writing this book and you know organising it and the whole thing because Conrad's too busy screaming at people downstairs (laughs) (laughs) and I was also pregnant so it was quite it was actually quite good so I just like sat up in the office kind of just frantically trying to write a book not really knowing how to do it but just Mm. did it and And all your experience previously that had been like in the kitchen and yeah I mean I never worked front of house and I mean I did kind of find myself suddenly shoved between the kitchen and out front and I used to be terrified at the front and I still don't like it I'm much happier hiding Mm. in the kitchen Mm -hmm. you know but um, like so it was it was it was really a crash course and yeah. you know I'd never worked in a Michelin star restaurant out front and everything yeah. and you're suddenly shoved out there yeah. and you're like <laughs> <laughs> so you developed your process let's say in a sort of a very self-taught yeah no, kind it of really way was yeah I mean I remember in, in cookery school they did one I think we did one class on how you write recipes in okay. terms of having the list of ingredients yeah. of you know coming the order of the ingredients then appearing in the methodology and that was it yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> and yeah, everything yeah. else was kind of off your own figured it out yeah okay. it was great and the publishers at the time were really hands-on and you know gave us lots of encouragement and uh, yeah it was kind of it was sort of I think when you're that age you don't really necessarily realize the repercussions of screwing something up so you're kind of like well to hell with it I just yeah. do it and yeah. write it and you just you know. yeah. and happy in your okay. naivete <laughs> just to be like oh no just make a book yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. so it was nice so I got great experience and then when we split up I suppose there were a couple of uh, editors at the time and they kind of said look we know you were always writing this cookery column each week or whatever it was and they just said look will you continue but under your own name so it was really nice mm-hmm. a couple of yeah. people gave me a nice break and okay. uh, then just kind of 
started from there. What's your process over the last few books and with the column as well? Tell us a little bit about the self-motivation and inspiration and how do you kind of keep it all rolling? My big kind of writing break was the Dubliner magazine like five million years ago. And I was uh, (laughs) writing restaurant reviews and everything, which was really quite dangerous because, yeah, uh, yeah, it was small city. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, sometimes the editing of it afterwards would would get a little bit uh, escalated. So I'd be like, I didn't write that. (laughs) So I get death threats from restaurateurs. Um, So that was great fun. And we we wrote some best selling restaurant guides and and everything. And then I moved to Image magazine and I did the restaurant reviews there. And that was really lovely and gentle and just monthly. Mm. So that was nice. And there was no kind of attack. (laughs) It was all really nice. It was all love. Uh, Yeah. 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 Then um, Patsy Murphy in the Irish Times, she rang and sort of said, look, would you do a restaurant or a recipe column each week? And it was just, it was so nice. It was actually lovely yeah. and actually writing about food rather than restaurants. Yeah. And I mean, the whole process of the column was really just to take dishes that I like cooking at home or, you know, taking my favorite cookbooks, looking at their recipes and then saying, right, you don't need to do that. Don't yeah. need to yeah. do that. Yeah. 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 That's a really, just, really nice Because I'm so lazy. I'm oh, really Oh, totally. The lazy cook just, me as well. It's fairness as well. You yeah. Know, yeah. It's kind of making something accessible and understandable um, to folks who don't spend 60 hours in a kitchen. No. Yeah. An amazing array of ingredients. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it, it's also trying to eliminate steps that you really don't need to, mm. that you yeah. can kind of, you can sacrifice over here and you can, yeah. you know, I, if, I know it sounds like a stew and I'm not trying to make myself sound amazing but uh, like I was thinking about it it's like it's like photographers as well you know I was cooking dinner the other night all my in-laws down in British and they kind of got like really grubby chicken breasts from mm. Tesco and everything. it was all like kind of and really horrible all of a sudden yeah. I still made something kind of tasty yeah. Yeah. You know, even yeah. with kind of bad ingredients, ingredients. nothing I really yeah. wanted yeah, yeah, to yeah. use but I did and, and I made dinner and it's kind of like a good photographer can still take a good photo with a instant camera you know what yeah, I mean and yeah, it's yeah, that yeah. kind of thing and it's just understanding technique and flavour yeah. and how to extract flavour is important sharing those simple tricks sharing with those, folks exactly, who, yeah. Yeah. who don't have that training you know? it's, yeah. like I always thought reading the column in the Irish Times and now with Journal Scheme and stuff it looks like a gorgeous job like a really really mm. nice thing to do like, yeah. and I, it's not dissimilar from like us running a podcast whereby yeah. you know week to week we get to talk about stuff that we're just like super interested really at that interesting. point in time yeah and what's normal in terms of motivation I find it difficult myself and this is just me as, as, as yeah. a productive person that I feel the need to have to have somebody there to disappoint in order for me to like keep going mm. that's oh, interesting yeah that is no are you worried about disappointing in terms of the podcast uh, Ian oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's Ian so cruel e- eternally strict, yeah. disappointed with you Harry <laughs> <laughs> he really likes me though <laughs> but like even when like when I was doing my thesis I just like my supervisor was super hands off he was like give me something when you got it and I was like never uh, if that's what you said yeah. I need you to give me a date and it's it's that kind of thing and I wonder with your process mm. how much w- guilt is involved <laughs> a lot yeah. a lot yeah. um, having a deadline for a national newspaper is okay, very motivating yeah, yeah, you yeah. know and, and I probably never would have got the books written if I hadn't had that bank of work behind yeah. me yeah. you know so I was really bad in school like mm-hmm. really bad hate it would fight with teachers all the time it's just complete pain to teach but I'm quite swatty as an adult now mm-hmm. you know and, and so I like I'd, I'd get all my work done. I'd always be ahead with my dad. You know, so I kind of, that would motivate me to just stay ahead and be really swatty and get the yeah. praise mm. I never got as a student. <laughs> so and, needy. And, you know, week to week and with your books, I suppose you're able mm. to write about the stuff that's important to you or that you're interested in. And then more recently with the Keats Jenna Kitchen, yeah. I suppose mm. it's a more personal, painful, uh, painful yeah. piece to write. You know, when the book came out, we knew it was going to ruffle a lot of feathers yeah. of sort of, 
food, food pyramiders. So, yeah, sorry um, to interrupt you for a moment, but just could you be able to explain to us a little bit sure. what the ketogenic kitchen is for anybody who hasn't read it? Yeah, yeah so it's, it was a book that I co-wrote with a nutritional therapist, Patricia Daly, um, and we both had cancer twice. I had breast mm. cancer in 2013. I had a malignant melanoma in my 20s. Patricia had a, two tumors in her eye. And we met through mutual friends uh, after I'd finished chemo and stuff, and just I'd gone to her uh, for a session, and, and just she spoke so much sense. Mm. Uh, and a lot of it I was kind of had been reading about and researching and and because you know if you're into food and so on and you get a chronic illness you know you tend to just okay what can I eat because there's so much you can't control I can't Mm. tell my oncologist well I think you should mix up this dose of texture you know so the only thing I could control was exercise well-being and and what I was eating the rest of it was really out of my hands so it was very important to do that and when Patricia and I met we were just kind of like why don't we write the book we both Mm. wish we'd had access to when we were first diagnosed something that really steered through all the myths went through really discussed the latest research and was a bit of a blueprint of two choices. My half was a low carb approach and then Patricia's was a fully ketogenic and the idea with and a ketogenic, what's fully ketogenic. Mm. Yeah. So a ketogenic diet is when you increase your fat if you're in your diet to about 70% of calories and it's a it's a diet that was predominantly used to help reduce seizures in epileptic yeah. children. Yeah. Been used for about a century now and because they noticed that children who had really bad seizures if they were fasting their seizures would be reduced. Okay. So obviously you can't fast people indefinitely mm. and for long mm. periods of time. So this diet was created to mimic fasting. Okay. So what it does is it changes your metabolism from burning carbohydrates, burning glucose, into burning ketones um, because you reduce the carbohydrates so much in, your, in terms of what you're actually eating mm-hmm. yeah. that your body produces ketones and mm-hmm. that's a fuel that you, your body runs quite well on. Okay. Um, so you'll always have a certain amount of carbohydrates even if you don't eat any carbohydrates yeah. through a process called gluconeogenesis. So your your glucose will always remain, you know, constant mm-hmm. to some extent because your brain and a few other um, parts of your body need glucose. So yeah. they can run on glucose, but the rest of your cells can actually burn ketones quite easily. So it's the idea is it's, it's this sort of metabolics, metabolic flexibility. So I never went fully ketogenic, but what I did was I've, I've become what you would call fat adapted. So I, I fast quite regularly now. Mm. And my life doesn't fall apart if I'm not eating every three hours, which yeah. it used to when okay. I followed a high carb, low fat diet, yeah. which is what we're often told yeah. to eat. Sorry, it's a bit long. No, 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 like that's that's the answer. It's great. Yeah, 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 totally. Because it's something I suppose that we're in the dark with. I think that we don't know so much about nutrition and mm. illness. They're almost completely separate, even though medical treatment and nutrition yeah, are true. held very separately, even though they're so incredibly interconnected, yeah. like bad diet can like cause terrible illness exactly. and a yeah, good diet can assist don't know in properly how connected they are. That's, I think, yeah. And I think yeah. that's that really was our frustration because yeah. when I was you know, in hospital, it's like, you know, what can I do? What can I do? What, yeah. what do I eat? And yeah. I sort of given, well, here's the leaflet in the yeah. on- onco yeah. ward. And you're sort of looking at it going, are you serious? Yeah. Like this is, you know, yeah. this is total. And, and she said about you know, <laughs> <laughs> and so you're, you're kind of going, and especially when you read books like uh, Big Fat Surprise by Nina Tykels and, and so on, you realize actually how those food, you know, it's flawed science yeah. and yeah. it's been completely discredited. And yeah. it is this tug of war between the food companies, the government. Absolutely, and, yeah. and, and it was not influenced by nutrition. It isn't, you That's know, thing, and, like, yeah. and when you see different statistics coming out, anything up to sort of, you know, 40 to 70 percent of all cancers are lifestyle oriented. 
facilitated. Mm. Now, that does include smoking. Yeah. But you're kind of going, so you, you're quite prepared to say that there are all these issues around poor diet and lifestyle, but then we don't do enough with regards to prevention. It's right. sort of Healing like you get diagnosed yeah. and then we throw a load of medicine at it. You know, and certainly modern medicine is, is brilliant and very effective at, yeah. at stopping things, but why aren't we doing more to prevent it? And yeah. when you see the rates of you know, obesity and diabetes just increasing. Join the dots. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And the frustration is sometimes you'll be like, well, there's no evidence. Well, there's mm. no evidence. Because the research isn't. Yeah. Yeah, it's very hard to, to yeah. basically do nutrition trials as yeah. well. And especially with cancer patients, you know, just round up a thousand ca- cancer patients, say, right, we're going to put you on this diet, yeah. you on this diet. We have a bit of stuff going on yeah. already. Exactly. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier about ruffling feathers. And I suppose mm. I was wanting to ask you, as a food writer or putting your name beside something that was ruffling feathers, something that was so dear to your heart and something yeah. that was quite a painful experience to go through. Was that a difficult process to, to put yourself out there like that? I think I was very taken back with the reaction and some of the commentary. Okay. Um, and I guess when you come from a good place yeah. and, you know, anyone who writes books knows you don't you don't really make any money from writing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there was this sort of idea that there was a snake oil kind of cashing in on. on and it's just like we okay. were so responsible. Yeah. You know, there's nothing yeah. in the book that doesn't have a paper and so on. And mm. you can argue with the science. And I think debate is healthy. Yeah. And that's sure. it. But sometimes I was really disappointed with how lowbrow some of it went. Okay. And you're kind of going, That's actually... That's kind of what the internet does. Yeah. It, it is, yeah. 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 It's and a voice you, to people you would, who don't think through their arguments. Yeah, yes. and I think it, it, it was... It, it all gets so... Uh, divisive and actually you're kind of going well well, really we need to be talking more about this you know I understand why oncologists maybe aren't interested in nutrition there are some that are Mm -hmm. predominantly the ones that we work with in the states and the UK but not everyone is and you can't be interested in everything but at the same time there must be a better way you know we have these rates of chronic illness just increasing 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 our diet is is terrible in a lot of ways, you know, this sort of overabundance of food, this idea that we should be eating and snacking regularly and often. Well, why? Mm. <laughs> you know, should we, yeah. why is breakfast the most important meal of the day? Yeah. You know, no, if you were told this was. Well, and also probably because a food day. company yeah. that sells <laughs> lots of yeah. Yeah. possibly, yeah. Do you know, yeah. so it's, Sounds we have to. <laughs> 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 this episode is sponsored by Kellogg's. <laughs> 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 um, did you find, Dominique, did you find that there was a tension between, um, uh, I suppose, did did you have to think a lot about the fact that you were writing something about something that worked for you and also worked for Patricia um, and then kind of disseminating that as advice that you hope would work for a lot of people? Yeah. You know, what what was the thought process there? Well, I think it was, it was very much, you know, this worked for me, this mm. worked for her, mm. it may not work for her. You know, yeah. there are lots of contraindications and also, you know, there is no one perfect diet. Yeah. And yeah. it was to yeah. keep emphasising that. And, and there's a great lecture that I think we have it pinned on our, our, our Twitter account of, of an oncologist called Dr. Dawn LeMann. And she's very interested in carbohydrate okay. restriction, uh, you know, before, during and after chemo. Okay. There's a professor, Walter Longo, out in California. He does a lot of work around fasting and stuff. And Fasting, if you think about it, has lots of, you know, observational uh, evidence behind it in terms of religion and so mm-hmm. on. They can see the benefits mm-hmm. of it and, and so on. But you're kind of looking at this and saying, well, a lot of this stuff just makes sense. There may not be the randomized, you know, clinical Control trials, yeah, but sure. a lot of it, the biochemistry makes sense. It kind of makes sense. You know, you're being bombarded with poison and stuff. 
why then bombard your system with a lot of kind of crappy foods yeah. on yeah. top of it, you know? So you're looking at, and, and she has a great sort of uh, lecture where she's looking at, and, and certain cancers and certain tumor types probably do do better on a low fat diet, you know, okay. some uh, fasting, some low carb, some ketogenic. And she's just making the point, you know, more personalized nutrition depending on what it is. And yeah. I guess that was the point. This isn't the gospel and this isn't right for everyone, but it can be an approach. And I think. Uh, certainly there should be more of an open-mindedness um, about it. I know a lot of people who, when they're diagnosed, they, they go vegan, they swear off dairy, they swear off mm. this and stuff. I read a lot of conflicting stuff that that may not be the best. You know, protein is really important yeah. and stuff uh, for immune function. But you're you're reading it and you kind of go, well, look, if you're thriving on it and you're doing really well on it and you feel good, yeah. that's terribly important. So learning to trust your own instinct. Exactly. Um, know go the with food your that you've gut. always done well on. And yeah. yeah. Okay. And I suppose when we were talking about the controversy that blew mm. up around it, people miss those nuances mm. very often when you're talking about something, you know, emotive, I suppose, yeah. like cancer, that people can kind of jump at and, and get excited yeah. about it. Yeah. Exactly. And the Patricia and I both went through, you know, I had I went through chemo, mastectomy, radiotherapy. Yeah. Patricia had radiotherapy in her eyes. Like, both of us went through down yeah. the conventional route. You know, yeah. we weren't yeah. saying, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, smoke this and rub a bit of that on there, yeah. you know, yeah. and you should be careful. don't go near a hospital. Do you exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was just yeah. like, this is adjunct, adjunct, adjunct. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you know yeah. what I mean? We yeah. should be doing as much as we can with our food. But at the same time, you've got to go through treatment. You know yeah. what I mean? And there was never. And so I think that was frustrating because we were very responsible in the messaging, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. and, and certainly with the press around it. But people take sound bites out yeah. of it and be like, yeah. oh, my God, they're saying ketogenic diet cures cancer. Yeah. No, we're yeah. not. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> OK, so you just have to stand by it. So your mantra yeah. just has to be like, fuck the haters. That's yeah. it. <laughs> That's the quote on the cover of the yeah. book. <laughs> you get that sort of pen or you yeah. scratch the thing, you'll see. Yeah. Hate is going hate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're on the front of a given the bird. Yeah. 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 Lovely positive message. The cover that didn't make it. <laughs> and is there any more books in the pipeline? Any things that we you? <laughs> no, Patricia like, screams when I say, we have to have a follow-up book. She's like, yeah. no, yeah. <laughs> can't take it, can't yeah. take it. Um, but uh, well, the book actually, it's just, it was really released in the States did really well it's about to be released in Germany next year yeah. and an oncologist writing in, uh, okay. the forward of it so That's it's really wonderful. nice okay. and you're kind yeah. of like it, it's great so they, you're sticking with this baby for a while yeah because it's a slow year, slow burner and um, you know I, I think it would be great and I, we were we were laughing we were saying I was talking to the publishers I was like the next uh, title of the book should be eat the fuck what you want yeah. <laughs> 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 that would be yeah. like really kind of yeah. slutty recipes for everything I like that book more <laughs> yeah. 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 So. we had good feedback from readers Yes, amazing. Okay. Yeah, and that's so it. That that's might a be something that potentially, if you're working with people who are in a similar situation to you and you're able to provide some kind of an outlet um, yeah. and something where people might be able to kind of regain that control in a way yeah. that they didn't know that they had, and they're like, oh my God, here it is now. Yeah. Is that a possible oh, thing? It's amazing. But also the oncologists that send. Patricia clients from the US and everything okay. and yeah. they're like oh my god they're doing so well and different mm. like that's what matters that's, that is what yeah. matters totally. so you have yeah. a very small section of noisy people who yeah. are never <laughs> going to have their minds changed yeah. you know you know. so there's no point even engaging yeah. to some extent and it's like okay that's grand there's room for everybody yeah. but mm. dial that down and exactly. continue doing what you feel is right yeah yeah. Mm. yeah. and I think you have to stick to it and as we say look it could all be you know total hooey in five years they'll find out something else is mm. better Nutrition is always changing yeah. and you yeah. have to be open minded about yeah. it. You know, it's like food's always changing, cooking styles, you know, it's it's mm. it's constantly evolving and it's 
you know, it, it shouldn't be this kind of black and white thing. And, and again, it's just making sure the people that are speaking, that they're, those conflicts of interests, you know, aren't there. As I say all the time, you know, I bloody brought bagels to Ireland. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I'm for the, the, like, this is, you know, I'm going against yeah, everything, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. in the business. But I have to, I can separate myself out, you know what I mean? And be yeah. like, okay, this is what I eat for health and kind of optimum. You know, I'm a pig. I, you know, and I'd eat carbs more than you night if I could. And it suited me. I'd be like, yes, slathered in fat and protein yeah. and yeah, just yeah, yeah, constant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I just, I love it. But you know, this is this is what I need to kind of stick with now, mm. and that that works for me. But you know, as I said, fever, le, le, whatever. You yeah. know, yeah. And I, I will. I'm sure this week go and climb the sugar loaf, and I'll probably have a 99 afterwards, and it'll be great. Great, yeah, yeah. you know, that's living, it. isn't it? Yeah, that's <laughs> real nice. Dominique, thank you so much for coming on to With Relish. We've really enjoyed it. I know, you guys are great. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Here in the studio today to lift the lid on the mysterious world of food styling is the inimitable Sharon Hunsmith, author of No Bake Baking, The No Cook Cookbook, and Food Stylist to the Stars. Sharon, welcome to With Relish. (laughs) Thank you, I liked my introduction. Thank (laughs) you, I just wrote it right there before you came. (laughs) (laughs) Um, come here, I wanted to talk to you about food imagery. Because in this episode, we've spoken to J.P. McMahon and we've spoken to Dominique Kemp about various kind of um, processes within making food media. Uh-huh. Um, and this is one that I think gets overlooked by a lot of people and certainly myself. I uh, know nothing about food styling. Okay. Um, and so could you tell us what's the role of a food stylist? Um, so I suppose, uh, yeah, a food stylist... Um is to, their their role is to make food look pretty for photography or for film, and and also a lot of people ask me, do I actually cook the food as well? So yes, so I do everything from uh, sourcing the food to cooking it to um, styling it, and um, I suppose it's quite an intricate job. It's not just a matter of putting the food on the plate. Um, I look at like shapes and uh, colors and textures. Um, and obviously I want the food to look vibrant. So things like green vegetables, I don't overcook them um, so that I keep them looking nice and green. Um, yeah, and I just want to, the food is often cold by the time it gets to the mm-hmm. plate and by the time it takes me to style it on the plate. So um, a big part of it is making it look warm and appetizing. So a lot of the final flourishes um, are key. Things like brushing oil over last minute, maybe on a a chicken breast that's gone cold, uh, brushing some oil over, a little bit of uh, so- flaked sea salt and cracked black pepper and then fresh herbs on last minute. And it's important for the food to be cold then because they'll wilt otherwise. They'll wilt the herbs, yeah. Yes. Um, and yeah, any sauces and things are always last minute as well. So we'll take, the photographer will take the shot or we'll look at it on screen and then um, just decide where the sauce is going to go based on looking through a camera because obviously if you're just standing there looking through your eye, you're looking at a different angle um, and we decide where the sauce is going to go and then trickle it down bit by bit or breasting an egg open, a poached egg is okay. always a good one as well. I'd say that's fun. That's fun, but yeah. it's like stressful. Is, is it going to run the right way? Is everyone ready? Is do everything you, looking perfect? Do you perfect? have like 15 eggs lined up ready to go? Uh, not necessarily. You might have okay. just have a, like another one, but okay. I, I try to just get it in one go because if it if you've burst one and, and it's leaked, it's going to ruin the rest of the plate. Okay. Yeah, so it's like everyone's, is everyone ready? Is everything is on? Is, this is it. Yeah, yeah and, and it, it generally works. And yeah. 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 And so you would be styling for not just your own books, presumably, but also you you, you would gig for others. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, I have food styled for over 20 years now. It makes wow. me sound a bit of a dinosaur. <laughs> um, so and it's only in recent years that I've started to do my own books. So, yeah, all, all of the rest of that time I've styled for other people, whether it was on cookery shows or cookbooks. Yeah. And um, I suppose one of the things that you hear a lot about uh, people when they're kind of frustrated with cookbooks, 
cookbooks and things you know they're at home and they're cooking and they're cooking directly from a book and they find that what they've cooked at home <gasps> does doesn't not match. match. Yeah, what's that all about? What's that all about? <laughs> <laughs> or people often say to me as well, uh, you know, the, the burger if they go into a burger bar and it mm. doesn't look like what they get on the in the pack um, so yeah like I said it takes a, like it does take a bit of time to arrange a plate of food I would never get a job in a in a sandwich bar or a cafe it would take me forever okay, to, yeah. to make the food um, but yeah it's just because it takes yeah that bit of time like I said I'm considering mm-hmm. the shape of the food if I'm doing say a plate of noodles um, or, sp- or say spaghetti actually um, I'm trying to get the nice twist on the fork okay. uh, of spaghetti that it still looks natural and then the nice little piles of spaghetti on the yeah. plate and the sauce in the right places and so bits of vegetables at so home thinking about you know the colour wheel and contrasting colours and blues going with yellows yes. and greens going with reds you would and never get your dinner on the table exactly yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so the reality of it is <laughs> yes. that um, it takes a bit of time it takes a bit of time yeah, yeah. And, um, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about because imagery is so much a part of um, the way that we're consuming all of these things now I think like Instagram for sure yes. is a, like a, you know, a huge uh, platform for yeah. for people in food to kind of make a name for themselves That's and it. to like it's almost like a business card for a lot of people yes. so I want to talk to you a little bit about how you have seen the industry change maybe as we've become you know we've moved away from it being you know 20 years ago to it being a lot more analog to now yeah. where it's like very much you know an instant digital yeah. thing well, that's what I was going to say. It's more instant now. Mm. So like trends are happening quickly. Um, things like, you know, the, the great avocado trend on um, Instagram. You know, it's inspiring to me. Like people are doing like fanned avocados. Yeah. And what did I see the other day? Um, they go brown. I, I, they look like they would take so long. Like they would I take know. so long to fan them out. I'm like, I how are they not brown? How are they that doing photo? that? Yeah. Uh, I saw like a, a pizza base made out of avocado slices the other day, which is like, oh my God, now they're doing this. Is this avocado trend ever going to go away? Yeah. But yeah, the, the trends are quick um, to happen, I suppose, on Instagram. And they're inspiring for me. And for others too, um, one trend that has kind of lingered on, like the avocado one, is... Uh, well, I suppose the, in general, the whole overhead mm-hmm. shot thing, yeah. which is, um, you know, it, it makes Instagram photos look beautiful yeah. instantly. If you take a photo just to overhead. Anybody at home who doesn't know exactly what we're talking about, I'm sure you do. But just <laughs> that, you know, when a camera is directly like, you know, above the food and you're looking down, I'm making lots of hand gestures here, yes, which so make like no sense in the radio. Was. But like just looking directly down, it's kind of almost like a 2D yes. uh, thing with lots of like overlapping bowls and like yeah. beautiful cloths and things behind it, which is like. And 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 it does, and they do look beautiful. Yeah. But um, for me as a food stylist, um, y- you know, in work, I suppose that whole trend can get a bit like tiring where, we sometimes, if we're on a book shoot, a cookbook shoot, we sometimes think, oh my God, we've done like so many overheads. And in a way, you f- you can fall into that easily because mm-hmm. it just make it does look, the food does look better instantly, yeah. mostly. So sometimes we just pull it back and say, no, let's do a normal angle okay. shot. And yeah. we have to work at that little bit harder at it um, to make it look nice. And and gen- like they're, they're equally as nice. It just yeah. for us takes a bit more, more thought. I suppose it's yeah. Yeah, but more going through the whole cookbook and, and, and have something that isn't just like a trend oh, the whole way through. And the exactly. one, one platform, the whole, not one yeah. platform, but the one style the one whole style, way through. Yeah. Yeah. Jamie Oliver did do uh, one book that was all overhead and I'm sure other people have done too and it was actually it was actually quite nice it wasn't headachey yeah okay um, it, it worked yeah and so when you're working for different clients so say if you were doing something for James Martin or Ina Garten or any of these people who you have actually worked for uh-huh. I can't believe you worked for <laughs> Ina Garten that's so fab um, is would would you have to take into account like the author's style like their yes. own thing so, so yeah so you would have to be multidisciplinary in terms of like 
I don't know, I suppose you'd have to kind of interpret interpret somebody else's vision as well. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. And I think that as a food stylist as well, that's what I try to do, that I'm not like a one-trick pony, I suppose. Yeah. I like to think that I'm not. Um, and I obviously... The publisher will come with the style brief usually um, with regards to the props and kind of the feel and the mood and the tone and the vibe of the book in general. Um, but then, yes, I always consider the the chef, the author. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, Nevin Maguire, I've worked on tons of his books, um, but I know he's obviously very chefy yeah. and he likes his dots and, you know, the food is very elegant yeah. and presented really nicely like that. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I take the author into consideration okay. completely. Yeah. Um, amazing. And I wanted to ask you as well, because so my kind of first introduction into food styling, I interned a couple of years ago, a good few years ago now, in Food and Wine magazine oh, and worked good. on some shoots with um, Harry... Harry Weir? Yes, Harry yes, Weir, yeah. yeah. And, um, and that was kind of my first experience of seeing this whole process which I thought was so bizarre yes you know I was just like looking at everybody like a team of people yeah. all kind of looking at one plate yeah. and just like prodding it poking like, peas around yeah I was like this is mad but yeah. then also like taking into account like how that's going to look on a cover I think there's all these different things that you have to think about yes. as well as like how much negative space that you're going to put into that's an image it. in order to kind of like put what's the word like copy on top of that and, exactly. and how those things work so yep. it's just kind of like the world is just so big and yeah. I don't know where my question is in that it's well, more uh, of an observation what, yeah. Th- yeah well what I was going to say about that is when I first started out many moons ago uh, I always loved flicking through food magazines when I was younger when I was a teenager and then I went on to become a home ec teacher mm. I didn't ever want to be a teacher but I just loved the whole food thing and being creative with food and I, I thought in my head I'd love to work in food magazines I went off to London as a teacher and on my summer holidays I got experience um, with BBC Good Food magazine and that's when I thought, oh, my goodness, I never even thought I, I loved all these photos, but I never thought about how they got there. Yeah. So they brought me off on shoots. And then, uh, yeah, exactly. I met a food photographer, a food stylist, their assistant, then a prop stylist, art director, you know, all of these creatives involved. And like you, I was like, wow. It's a, it's a much bigger part yeah. of the industry than I ever kind of gave it credit yes, or, gave or, yeah. or even considered. That's it. A lot of work goes into. A lot so of work. back then we used to shoot maybe about six shots a day, okay. and now like back in Ireland in particular, obviously budgets are a bit smaller. But since that recession mm. as well, like everybody wants more done. So yeah, we have kind of pasted up to about ten. Yeah, about 10 shots a day. Okay. But you need a big team to, to get through to that get amount through of work. That. Yeah, and to do, it, to do it justice. And is there still, are people still in the trade using those old tricks that I heard about, such as like painting a raw chicken to look <laughs> roasted? And they do. Not you. I'm not saying, yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> um, in I suppose in more commercial work mm-hmm. where it's for advertising or for packaging. Yeah. Um, because the food is sitting around and it needs to look it needs to look like at its best so that yeah. chicken or that turkey needs to look plump and unwrinkled and that was the one that yeah. really turned my stomach you know I felt the, like cheated by that within oh, food styling which the is, turkey is, 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 the, the painted the turkey the painted turkey you painted brown I was I like know. oh my god that is so dangerous I know <laughs> but in the, in the world of cookbooks um, it's much more editorial yeah. and natural style and it happens much more quickly yeah. and you want it to look natural Um so yeah, sometimes like a bit of a wrinkle on a chicken or a bit of a burnt bit or like caramelized yeah. bit is always a good thing. Okay. And yeah, it yeah. just looks more natural. So oh, yeah, luckily the trend I suppose is moving further away from that kind of very perfect, you know, yes. like Thanksgiving dinner style. Yes. You know, like the big <laughs> banquet in the middle of the table where That's it's a bit it. more like, you know, spilled pepper on the side of or something. That's yeah. it, yeah. yes. Um, and I suppose like one of the things that I've now come to appreciate about it is that like talking about the cookbook experience, you as a cookbook author and a ghostwriter and you've um, done all sorts within the industry. I think one of the things that I took away from it was that just 
the imagery has so much to do with it that when you when I read a cookbook, I get totally lost in it. You know, I escape into this thing, and I never cook a recipe from a cookbook. It's never, never, <laughs> never about that. You know, I'm just like I'm here to kind of absorb it, and like and then you're the, inspired by it totally. Yeah. So like you just kind of put it in the memory bank. Yes. And be like, okay, I think I know that kind of combination of something that will work, and then later on I'll use that. It comes out. And yeah. one of the ones that I suppose stylistically that I adored was um, Jerusalem by Yatamada oh, Lengi. Yes. You know, and there's yes. so many things where you're just like. Oh my god! Yeah, this is it's so stunning. inspiring, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And now we all put pomegranates on everything. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of yogurt here, and yeah, yeah and tahini there. Um, yeah, absolutely. All of his books, all of his food uh, is totally inspiring. Um, and another, uh, well, not yeah, actually, she is a cookbook author. Another person I'm inspired by is Donna Hay in Australia. Do you know Donna? I don't know. So her, Donna yeah. Hay um, was a food stylist originally, and then she. Um, uh, published began to publish a magazine and she's been publishing them for years and now publishes books as well and yeah her style and and, and it's funny because within the my industry her um her photos would be pulled out as reference shots a lot okay. you know from clients saying yeah. we want a Donna style oh I see okay. and also if we if we have a bit of a brain block on a shoot we often go right what, what would Donna do okay what would Donna do <laughs> what would Donna like do yeah. yes I've heard people say what would Sharon do I was quite <laughs> 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 that was a big compliment yeah, but yeah. absolutely yeah um, and so for yourself now in the future, are you planning on doing any more of your own books? Is that something we can expect to see? Yes, absolutely. Great. Yeah. So it's funny with each of my books so far, I have had a baby as well. So <laughs> we're my next, next door in the studio. My, yeah, my ne- the yeah, they're yeah. next door. Hopefully being quiet. Um, but my next book, hopefully there's no, like not another baby now at the moment anyway. Uh, but um, it's just taken me a bit of time. I had a bit of, a, uh, yeah, I hit a wall, I think, with mm. ideas. Yeah. So I've finally come up with a new idea. And. I love it and it's just a matter of now can putting it down it? can we hear it um, it's something funny enough something to do with kids okay yeah Great. that's all, all right. I'll say Great. and uh, it's going to be fun yeah. and I just need to put the proposal together and mm-hmm. pitch it and amazing and so yeah. will you will you be involved in every aspect of that when the food start, will, is that going to be yeah, yeah that was the big thing when totally I started my own yeah. books I thought there's no way I'm, I'm going to let someone else do my own styling wow. but I, I, I do remember the first day of the first shoot of, you know of my first book I was so nervous I was so nervous because really? I just felt this pressure of you know oh my god this is like styling from my own book this yeah. is my own thing and yeah. by the time it came to the second completely it was out there. completely yeah. out there yeah and by the time I came to my second book, I, was, I felt better. I felt okay, fine about like, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't. Yeah, but absolutely. I do. I test. I write all of my own recipes, test them mm-hmm. all and uh, food style them and prop style them and all of it. Yeah. Amazing. Don't just don't take the photos, but I'm working on that, too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So what always happens? What happens with the food at the end of a shoot? <laughs> Actually, people always ask that question. Um, so absolutely, we eat it. Oh, amazing. Okay, yeah, so great. that's why that's the good thing on a, an editorial shoot. We try not to mess with it too much or make sure things are cooked. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sometimes we sit down and say, oh, I don't think we season that one or mind those carrots might be a bit raw. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, well, we always eat it. Good. Sit down and have lunch or okay. everyone takes food home for dinner. And Amazing, because yeah. I just have this thing stuck in my head of there being like, you know. Waste. W- well, yeah, waste, but also that because the food is so styled that it's styled to the point of oh, inedible, be, no. you know, which is great that it's yeah. not. Because I'm yeah. like, when I was working in 
uh, Food and Wine and the editor at the time, uh, Ross Golden Bannon, was oh, yes. giving me a couple of like you know horror stories from oh. the old days. <laughs> yes. And he was saying that like you used to like leave a lit cigarette behind something so that it appeared to be steaming. Oh, and he yes. said that you'd never shoot ice cream; you just like do mashed potato. Oh yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So lots of things. That's that, but that's that thing again, particularly on the commercial side of things. Yeah, a lot of the food does get thrown away. Yeah. It's inedible. Yeah, and I suppose like the culture has changed somewhat now because you know I like it's kind of bad it's not, it's not bad but it's a faux pas really to kind of you know go to a restaurant where they're showing you pictures of the food first you know uh-huh. uh, <laughs> never go to a restaurant that has photos on the menu I don't know though <laughs> I think like, we're, like we're, I mean I love those kinds of places too for I, their I trashiness mean, I, you know? on holidays though like in, in I'm thinking of Spanish resorts or something oh, that's yeah. our rule when we go there I mean, if there's a picture outside uh, yeah, yeah don't go there but what if it's a good picture <laughs> uh, yeah, or a good looking restaurant yeah that's yeah. <laughs> lots of judgments to Lots make isn't judgments. there but I, yeah there is but I think that um, because we're now you know knowing a lot of, about a restaurant or about a cookbook writer or about a, an individual chef through their online presence through their Instagrams oh, yes. and things like that that's kind of part of what's going on actually. oh yes you know, like yeah. you're looking at Bastable online and you see that they've got a lovely Twitter account and you're just like or not a Twitter account but an Instagram account and you're like this looks amazing that, totally. is, that is seeing it before you buy yeah oh yeah true yes and especially if there's influencers going there as well yeah. you follow her oh what are they having oh that yeah. looks nice and yeah and I was talking I was away with a friend of mine Kuan recently in Mexico the two of us is this there. chef Yes, Kuan. Chef Kuan oh, yes. from Nomad. Yeah, he um he came and did a couple of days' experience with me. Oh, amazing! Yeah, years okay. ago. Yeah, yeah, the two yeah, of us worked together for years. Uh, oh, in the, did you do the pop up with him? Yeah. then? no, I yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the two of us oh, did the pop up thing together. Yeah. Um, so he's uh, where is he at the moment? He is currently in Copenhagen. He's working for Nomad. Oh, that's right. I yeah, saw that recently. So, yeah, and he was over in Mexico for their pop up, and oh, uh, so I went over and I met him <gasps> at the end of it, and then the two of us did a bit of traveling around for. Oh, a while. fab! Yes, it was incredible. So Sharon Hearn-Smith food stylist and author of many books and hopefully more to come. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much for coming on to With Relish. I think that we learned a lot more about the food styling and the imagery that surrounds the food industry. So thanks, Mill, for that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. 